can you imagine the marketing meetings that would look at David Lynch's Dune and would say, you know what, ten-year-old boys are gonna love playing with these with their worm sign and whatnot? Can you imagine what those marketing <laughs> meetings were like? Radio Drone. It might be a Thursday night when you're listening to this. I'm Josh Hadley. I am? Maybe? Who knows? But you're probably listening to this not on a Thursday night. You're probably listening to this on some other night. And I really don't care because I'm Josh Hadley. I am? Yeah, I'm pretty sure about that this time. With me, almost as always, is Peter, the Serbian from Canada. Yes, that's a weird oxymoron. I think I'm listening to this last Wednesday. Or am I? Possibly. Maybe. Who knows? Who cares? Cecil is out this week. So we got a replacement, so we got Cecil Light, an old friend of ours, Frederick Fritz, is going to sit in for Cecil. And yes, I'm calling him Cecil because he hates when I do that. What's up, Fred? (laughs) Not much, buddy. How are you? I am. That's all you get this week. Before we get into the topic, (laughs) before we get into the topic, we need to talk about sex toys. And it has nothing to do with the topic, but Adam and Eve sponsors the show. So go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, and you will get a special holiday offer to kink up your holiday with. You'll get 50% off of a single item. You'll get a special naughty and nice kit, which includes a gift for him, a gift for her, a gift for both of you, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, to the actual topic. The Hollywood Reporter had this interesting roundtable where they had Toby Hooper, Quentin Tarantino, Ridley Scott, and some other filmmakers talking about what happened to middle-class filmmaking. I, had not, I hadn't really noticed this before, but Ridley Scott pointed out that middle-class filmmaking has gone away. Now, what is middle-class filmmaking? It's how nowadays there are either the asylums out there or there are the Disneys and, and the New Line, that you've lost that sort of $6 million, $15 million, $20 million kind of film company, the Canons and the New Worlds and New Line was before they were bought by Disney and whatnot, the Miramax before they were bought by Disney. There are no middle ground anymore, really, for filmmaking, that you have one extreme, low budget or super mega budget. What happened to the middle, to the middle class filmmaking? Well, I mean, as far as I've gathered over the years, they all just kind of went bankrupt. All those little mini companies that were just kind of miniature versions of Fox or Warner Brothers or whatever. You had the, you know, had the the New Worlds, the the Canons, the little companies like that, putting out definitely what would be sort of middle class film weren't necessarily low budget. You could sense that there was effort in the cinematography and that there was enough of a budget to have some cool practical effects and you'd have some like some cool B-level actors showing up. You know, you'd, you'd have the Dolph Lundgrens and the Chuck Chris's and people like that showing up. Stuff like The Asylum or occasionally Troma putting out movies or you've got, you know, the big ones like like Disney and stuff like that putting out movies. And Disney seems to just be acquiring properties left and right. Nowadays, it just seems like a whole giant corporate buyout, which might be why we're not seeing more smaller independent not even 
dependent, but like middle class companies there because they're in reality, not even just in movies, there doesn't really seem to be a middle class anymore. It's either you're big time corporate high or you're kind of you're kind of lower class uh, scraping by. And I think it is because we're having these big corporate buyouts with ironically movies like uh, Robocop happen to predict. Well, I think it's the same thing that's basically happened uh, to what we refer to as low budget filmmaking, you know, on the independent scene that uh, essentially what's called low budget today would be like your paranormal activity kind of films where they make them for next to nothing and they reap in such a huge profit margin that they don't want to experiment anymore. They don't want to take chances. And a lot of these smaller companies, you know, they picked up the slack on that. Uh, Peter brought up uh, Canon, and Canon's a great example because they were the example of how those type of studios would survive. They would sell movies to markets in other countries, and they would, okay, yeah, they would make money off of Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson movies, but they would also get films like 52 Pickup, and uh, they would do Barfly. And those are, I think, exactly the kind of films we're talking about today, is these sort of middle mm. ground, little more experimental, uh, I don't want to say experimental, but they were definitely films that were not made with profit margin in mind. You're just not going to have that today for a couple of reasons. One is, as I already mentioned, the, the, the low-budget film doesn't exist the way it used to. So those companies aren't around anymore. You don't have the Empire Pictures. You have Full Moon to a degree, but not like they once were. Traumas, no more, really. Uh, not like they once were. Canon's gone. All these great little companies are gone because that market has either been absorbed by the Disneys and the Paramounts, and they make those low-budget paranormal activity films, or they make these gigantic blockbusters, and there's just no overseas market anymore uh, because we've also entered region coding uh, due to Blu-ray, and a lot of these films are not playable in other countries. <laughs> there's just no way to market these films anymore. I would say not just marketing, but also profitability. I've said this before, and I'm not going to back off of this. Netflix is part of the problem with movies. Back in the days when you were selling your movie to home video, you could make, say your movie cost a million dollars. You could make $30,000 right up front for just the rights to your movie, and then off of cassettes sold, you could make your budget back just off VHS. HBO and Showtime and the Movie Channel and Cinemax, they would be paying $30,000, $40,000 to have your movie for a year. Now, HBO pays you a grand for your movie. Netflix pays you a grand for your movie. You the market is so flooded, nobody wants to pay anymore. Netflix has driven the price down for what you can make on a profit by selling your movie to Netflix to the point that you can't have a budget of over a million dollars or you, there's no way you can make a profit off selling it from Netflix. Now, if you're Disney, if you're 20th Century Fox, if you're Paramount, you've got theatrical and all that. But I'm talking the independent filmmaker, you can't make money anymore. You can't be an Avco embassy. An Avco embassy cannot exist in this market anymore. This Netflix market, Charles Band recently went on a screed on a, on a podcast about how he can't make money anymore. He said back in the Empire days, you could make a movie for a million dollars and you'd make a million dollars opening weekend and everything else was gravy. Now he goes, if I spent a million dollars on a film, I would never 
make that million back in today's market. He said streaming has completely killed the value of film. And I think it has. Yet everyone goes, Netflix is a godsend for movies. No, it's not. It's actually going to kill movies. It's going to only make big budget movies the only kind you get down the line. And you assholes don't seem to see that. Uh, I don't know, because I, I don't watch a whole lot of Netflix. I don't have Netflix. I've only ever really indulged in it at, at other people's houses. I've enjoyed Daredevil, I guess. I, I see Netflix as a really great avenue for some original TV shows and stuff, but as far as movies go, I, I don't use it for that. I don't think it has nearly good enough of a variety. Uh, what you've said in terms of you know the, the stuff that Charles Band has said about it and making money off of these kind of movies, in terms of like actually making films... It does seem to be killing it in a way because it's it's a completely different way of, of marketing it and some and some filmmakers and such really get left in the dust because it's it's a lot harder to locate those kind of niche films and more middle class films and more of the, the B to C level and even some of the Z grade level ones. So I, I can I could see what you're saying, but I don't I don't know if it's going to kill it, but it's definitely making it harder, which streaming in general, being able to watch stuff online is is making it harder for certain filmmakers but i mean there were a lot of people worried about vhs uh, as well and, and people uh recording video and whatnot so I, I guess we'll have to see where the where the tide takes us so to speak to backtrack just a second to go because it goes right into what you're asking I, do i think netflix directly is causing this no i think this goes back to i think the marketing you're talking about and the profitability really fall back to what i was saying earlier that they cannot market these films in the same way Something like a barfly, like I said, would not make a big profit, not even by today's standards or any standards, but because they could sell that film to other countries. Oh, you want the Chuck Norris? You want the Charles Bronson? Well, you have to buy barfly. And they'd be like, okay, well, so there you go. That film is already going into profit and has nothing to do with who's going to see it yet. It's just the way the market works. Now we have a closed system. And so Netflix, Redbox, Whatever. Amazon is jumping in the game now. These guys, it's its a closed system is what I'm trying to say. These films have no outside outlet. There's nowhere else to go. You can sell it yourself on your own website, of course. But as we know, that <laughs> that's not even niche market selling there. It has a lot to do with the way the system used to be structured versus the way it's well structured now. It, it's you know, I hate to say it, but Lloyd Kaufman's absolutely right. These companies, these Time Warners and Sony, they've they've got it locked. They've won. When, when you have a movie, like we're recording this a week before The Force Awakens comes out. The Force Awakens has already made a billion dollars profit on pre-sale tickets alone, and it doesn't even come out for another week. That plus... <laughs> Plus, mark, plus all of the cross-marketing, all the action figures and the cartoons and the comic books and all that. That is, unfortunately, the future of movies. I was reading an interview with a low-budget filmmaker. He was saying that, especially in a sci-fi and horror property, if you want to make money, you have to make a movie that is, his word, toyetic. You need to be able to – you need to make the movie not for the movie – but because you know it'll sell t-shirts and action figures and you can make comic books out of it, he said, nowadays, movies cannot stand as just a movie. There has to be a cross-marketing tie-in or you will not make money. Sadly, I'm going to say that's pretty much got it. All we have to do is look at internet trends. 
because that's what we're talking about. You know, when we deal with streaming, YouTube, if you look at anyone who's popular, anyone who's popular and has their own successful YouTube channel, they have t-shirts, they sell independent DVDs, side deals with other companies. It's like they use it like some kind of consumer base. Oh, get this shot glass, get this t-shirt. It's like they're wearing the property now as opposed to the property itself, if, if that makes sense. I hope that I wasn't being weird, but it's more about what you like. Or no, let me rephrase this. It's more about saying what you like than what you actually like. It definitely didn't used to. I mean, it's it's kind of funny when you look at how it used to be where, you know, an adult movie would come out and it would do so well, it would get its own little TV TV show, kids show spinoff, like hell, it happened to Toxic Avenger. I'm sure Lloyd Kaufman didn't intend to market that to children, but we got Toxic Crusaders and we got some Toxic action figures. Robocop, um, Conan, yeah, Rambo, yeah. Chuck Norris, they all got kids shows. Yeah, and they didn't. They never intended to. Kids just happened to like it, so they they made movies that were clearly or properties in general that were clearly strictly for adults. But it ended up doing so well that it got a line of toys and a cartoon and T-shirts and all that stuff. They seem to have it in mind now, where you have to have that already set up, and that's not the way it works. They're they're whoring themselves out too early and maybe it works for some people. Maybe it doesn't, but I really consider it to be very empty because you're not even letting the movie do well before you start shoving toys in people's faces at adamandeve.com, everybody. <laughs> um, no, that, that's toys shoved in other orifices, not faces. Yes. It's a bit different where, yeah, it's, I kind of see that as um, they're not quite grasping the, the whole picture there is it's so much better when, when you put something out and you've, you've put in this effort and you've made exactly the kind of movie you want to make and it ends up appealing to so many different people and you end up getting the toys and the comic books and the, you know, the, the TV cartoons and, and all that stuff. Whereas now they're trying to do that beforehand. And it's, it's yeah, as you said, they've already marketed the shit out of the new Star Wars so much that it's pretty much already made its money back on sales tickets alone months beforehand. Now that's Star Wars. I guess it makes sense that it would do that. Because it's it's Star Wars. Everybody's loved Star Wars for the past like 40 years or however long it's that you know that franchise has been out for. But they seem to be doing that for pretty much everything. As, as soon as the even the trailer does slightly well, they're immediately putting out some sort of merchandising, some kind of toy or a comic book spinoff or T-shirts or whatever. You know, pimping the hell out of it on on Twitter. And you know, hey, that's great. Marketing is great. But it's like they don't actually believe in their project. They believe that they have to get the money back on merchandising because they they even they know that it doesn't the movie itself doesn't actually have any real kind of heart or soul. And I'm not saying that it's that way with all movies, but I think when you've already made well past your money back before the movie has even come out, it's kind of weird because that didn't work before. They tried to do that with movies like Megaforce by catering a movie to what could end up being the next G.I. Joe, and it ended up failing. I don't know why that's working nowadays. To be fair, Dune had its own toy line and coloring books and birthday party hats. And can you imagine <laughs> Can you imagine the marketing meetings that would look at David Lynch's Dune and would say, you know what, 10-year-old boys are going to love playing with, these, with their worm sign and whatnot. Can you imagine what those marketing <laughs> meetings were like? Oh my god. If I if I may, uh are you both familiar with the movie Blue Ruin? No. No. 
okay, see, this is exactly what we're talking about. This is a smaller independent film. It is wonderful. Only reason I heard about it was, I, I can't remember if he mentioned it on their own show or if it was on the forum. I think they mentioned it on the show. Red Letter Media had brought it up. And I went and sought it out, watched it, and was like, wow, this reminds me of like, the Coen brothers early days, you know, like blood simple kind of filmmaking. This is a wonderful movie that people really need to seek out. And it is exactly the kind of film you could not slap on a mug or a t-shirt or you certainly don't want to make freaking toys out of this thing. It's a very unusual take on the revenge story. Hmm. This kind of film just can't thrive today. It can't. There is no way it can grow unless again some sort of viral campaign occurs some you know everyone starts tweeting it it starts getting memed on facebook well let's say this right now we're all fans of bad movies the films that are getting the most discussion today on video shows facebook any of this any of this are bad movies you know tommy Wiseau's the room is the biggest independent movie <laughs> but i mean like can you guys see how an Avco embassy or an AIP just can't exist in this world, how it's actually kind of surprising that New Concord is actually still putting out movies. Let's travel back in time. AIP is where all of the, the Corman Poe pictures and whatnot, AIP put out a lot of black exploitation stuff like Foxy Brown and Sugar Hill and whatnot, Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat. Mm -hmm. AIP was having some financial problems as they went into 1980. They went out of business in 1980 kind of canon before canon because canon existed mm. but it wasn't glon and globus at this point it was a different company aip mm. american international pictures was essentially one to two million dollar films made for arguably the drive-in market mostly genre films they would make these for one or two million dollars and they would make that back opening weekend like what charles band used to do with empire now when they went out of business in 1980 Avco Embassy, who had been around before that, kind of picked up the slack. They were making two to six million dollar films, and they were making classics like Phantasm, The Fog, The Onion Field, Escape from New York, The Exterminator, Prom Night, Scanners, The Howling, Time Bandits, Vice Squad, Swamp Thing, movies like that. Avco Embassy was making the kind of movies we all grew up on on relatively small budgets. You can't do that mm. today. The Asylum could never do what Avco Embassy did. Could you see even a, let's say the Asylum actually put $6 million into a film, it would never be as good as even a low lower end Avco Embassy film, would it? Absolutely not, because their whole intention is to make a movie as bad as possible because that's what they go out to do. They're not actually around to make good movies. They're making cheap, quick cash-ins, and that's, that's exactly what they know how to do, and it's what they're going to continue doing. What changed? What changed when, like, an Avco Embassy or an AIP, what changed in the market? Is it the, the market itself, the technology, such as streaming or whatnot, or the audience? What changed to make, say, a $6 million for Escape from New York? Now you'd have to make that same movie on a, a million bucks, even adjusted for inflation, and it would all be CGI and green screens. Well, I think to answer your question properly, we do have to go back in time a little bit because this is not a current problem. This is a problem that's just finally reached a head. 
this started back, let's use uh, one of my favorite directors, Bob Clark. This man has arguably one of the most diverse careers just about any well-known director. This is the guy that did A Christmas Story. He also did uh, Black Christmas, one of the more infamous Chris, uh, Christmas films. He did Porky's, Kirk 182, From the Hip, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, Deranged. This is a man who definitely had a wide breadth. And now all people know about him is they make fun of him because he's the man that did Baby Geniuses. Mm. And what they don't know is how he ended up as the director of Baby Genius, which is the system changed. Before, he could do a movie like one of my personal favorites I did a review of called Murder by Decree. That film was between three to six million dollars. You know, this film takes place in period London. It looks amazing. If You'd never get a film like this. And he said, quote unquote, he only did movies that he himself had a passion to do, that he wanted to do. He felt a drive to do. When that system dried up, and it did, he was only left with a children's market. He had no choice. Either he did films like, what was the one he did? Some Karate Dog or something? I don't know all of the films he did for kids stuff. Terrible films. Again, this is all he's known for now, sadly, are Baby Geniuses 1 and 2 and a couple of these Cop Dog, Karate Dog, whatever movies. And it's because that's it. This man couldn't get work. This is, again, look at the, the list of films I just gave you. This man couldn't even get workman-type jobs? Seriously. And this was by the 90s. This problem began and festered all throughout the 90s. And I could go on and on with lists of endless directors, but essentially, that's your problem right there. It started, and it's kind of been like a funnel. It started wide, and it got narrower and narrower, and we're, we're here at the tip. See, I also see that, that the definition of budgets have changed. For instance... In uh, 1997, when American History X came out, that was a $9 million film, $9 million budget. And I read an interview with Edward Norton in Entertainment Weekly when he said he's not used to doing low-budget movies like this. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? $9 million in the 90s is a low-budget film. I mean, Pain and Gain, I loved the movie. The movie cost $28 million. Michael Bay, who had been making $100 million movies, says for Pain and Gain, Quote, it was nice to get back to my low-budget roots. $28 million is a low budget nowadays? Are you f***ing fisting me? Interesting you picked American History X, because here begins the studio involvement where the closed system is seen. You said Edward Norton. Well, Edward Norton was picked for that role by the studio. The director did not want Edward Norton thoroughly upset that he had to use Ed Norton. Now, we all know Ed Norton did a fantastic job, so this isn't to pick on him. He did a great job. Even the director ended up liking him, but it was not what he had envisioned for the movie. The studio made him do it, so American History X, this smaller movie, now had a name property. That's all they want. They want something they can market, all right? It's it's the hostess Twinkie, you know what I mean? It's if it, it's not, we've got this new product. No, it's we brought back the Twinkie. It's marketing beginning, middle, and end. And it didn't just happen. It's been going on a long time. And people don't realize it. And I, this is going to offend some people. They've been conditioned. They're being conditioned right now. It's still happening. And it's going to continue to happen. There are people that sit in rooms. They're paid millions of dollars. 
just to figure out how to get your butt in that theater seat, how to get your butt, you know, clicking that button on Netflix to watch that one movie. That's all they do. It's pure psychology now. And again, they're winning. Well, I think the fact that uh, a low budget nowadays is, you know, considered $28 million, I think that just shows that there really is not a middle class in terms of filmmaking, because that would have been more than enough of a budget to make one of the one of the decent middle class movies of, of New World and, and canon. I'm sure Lloyd Kaufman would have been really happy with $28 million. It just shows that it is. It's either a super low budget asylum movie or it's a big blockbuster or it is a middle class film and probably would have done a little bit better in the the later 90s or the late late 80s or the 80s and the 70s but nowadays it, it slips through the cracks because people i don't want to say people don't get them or or aren't aren't intellectual enough or whatever because i don't want to come across as a pretentious cunt movies like like filmmakers like nick reffin are sort of just niche directors a lot of not a lot of people know about his films other than like a select that uh, like movies like Bronson didn't do very well uh, Valhalla Rising uh, Drive Only God Forgives they're kind of just known by a select few people and they do extremely poorly in theaters especially recently with Only God Forgives I think only one theater in all of Vancouver got that movie and it played for maybe a week that would be an example of a, of a middle class movie nowadays people just don't pay attention to them because they're a little bit slower. They have a little more of an artistic vibe to them. They're directed a little differently. They're written a little differently. They're like the types of movies Frederick was talking about earlier. Movies like Barfly that did a hell of a lot better back then. Whereas now, I don't know, something seems to have changed. We, we Those movies do come out every now and then, but they're incredibly independent. They don't really have their own company to be released by. They have to get somebody to, to market it a certain way. And usually it's marketed very poorly, slips through the cracks, and nobody sees it. Which kills this, this middle ground, which is why... Michael Bay sees $28 million as a low budget because what is there to really compare it to as like the asylum movies or, you know, a Michael Bay flick or something else that's, that's come out by, by Fox or, you know, Sony or whatever. And I don't know. I think that's, that's sort of, I see it as people just aren't paying attention to those kinds of movies anymore. So there just really isn't a middle ground to be seen at least by the, by the general populace. Is it also, though, that the filmmakers, like with Michael Bay seeing $28 million as a low budget, Edward Norton seeing $9 million as a low budget, is there something about the filmmakers that that has changed as well? For instance, in that Hollywood Reporter roundtable with Ridley Scott and Tarantino and all them, they, they seem to think that money should just flow in for their creative vision. A film should be measured by its creative merits, not by its financial profits. Of course, these are business people who don't want to always give us the money to see our visions through. Is that mm -hmm. not kind of an arrogant douchebag kind of, my, my, it's my vision and you will give me all the money I want? Kind of that Michael Cimino, like with, with the Sicilian. Every time he'd go over budget, they would just give him more. And he's like, and when they stopped giving him money, he said they were compromising his vision when they'd already given him $19 million over what his budget was, it was, no, mm. my vision must be seen. Is that a problem with the filmmakers today? The Hateful Eight. We haven't seen it. It hasn't come out yet. It went over budget by almost $20 million because of the problems with shooting in the snow. Miramax gladly gave that to Tarantino. Tarantino just kind of looked at that as Miramax was making my vision. Do you, do you think that it's a problem with the filmmakers that money is no object anymore? I guess we'll say that 
obviously it hurts the the little guy in the end. Uh, you're talking about pretty big names, though. I mean, Chimino, you know, he had come off a really hot property. Deer Hunter, that's why he got all that money for Sicilian. I mean, Quentin Tarantino, obviously, he's still, you know, kind of the darling. Maybe not with Hollywood, per se, but definitely with a particular group. And uh, it's it's a really hard thing to say because no small no name is going to come out of anywhere and, and get that kind of attention. I mean, maybe the closest you have is, and I can't remember his name, but the director of the recent Fantastic Four movie, who did the smaller Chronicle film, Fantastic Four is his next movie, and then it was promptly taken away from him. So that's why I don't know how to answer the question. Studios have a very bizarre way of looking at money anyway, in my opinion, because the, the, probably the most offensive thing I heard recently was Simon Pegg was talking about the new Star Trek film, and uh, they had approached him because, to write it, by the way, the fans were unhappy that Star Trek seemed to have gone away from what people loved about it initially. So they asked Simon because Pegg Because Into Darkness was crap. Right. But it's also, not only was it crap, but I think the idea of Star Trek has disappeared. And so Paramount was like, hey, you could bring this back and rein it back in. So Simon Pegg, who loves science fiction, he's a diehard fan, uh, wrote a script. And basically Paramount did not like it. Because, and this is the part that I've just, I was blown away by and was offended by. They were looking at the last Avengers movie and they were looking at Star Trek Into Darkness and they were looking at how much the Avengers movie had made versus the Star Trek film. And they were like, why is there all this money on the table we're not getting? We should be making exactly the same thing Avengers should be making. Now think about that for a second. Think of the absurdity of that thought process. These are movies that are making... Mil- hundreds of millions of dollars. They're worried about a gap of maybe three to five million dollars. That's their biggest concern. Not that it was garbage. Not that the writing was terrible. The direction was choppy. The science, the science in it was ludicrous. This is the kind <laughs> of writing we're getting. But also, Fred, it comes down to like with Avengers: Age of Ultron. Disney is on record saying that they considered that movie a flop. It made a yes. billion dollars, and th- and it's a and it made more than it cost. But they thought it should have made two billion dollars. So it's and a flop. A movie that makes makes over a billion is a flop because it didn't make two billion. That's insane. Yeah. And meanwhile, Paramount is off to the side, drooling, saying, "Gee, I wish we could have made that two billion. I, it, it's ridiculous. We, it's a line of thinking. I don't think we're capable of following." I don't think the three of us could fathom the utter stupidity and insipid nature and the greed. That's why I say it's it's sort of an impossible quest. Well, I think it just goes to show what happens when you start putting all of your eggs in the corporate basket. When all the properties start getting bought up by a big name like Disney or a big name like Sony, you're dealing with people whose only interest is making as much money as absolutely possible disney is huge of course they want the two billion dollars they want the blockbuster to be as absolutely huge as possible even though a billion is an insane amount of money for a movie to make especially in in this day and age like to look at a billion dollars as a small amount truly shows you again the lack of the middle class the fact that there's only a lower class and a giant upper class so much to the point that a billion dollars is a small amount I know that there are a lot of people going on about the the risks of, oh, why Disney shouldn't be in charge of Marvel or Star Wars or blah, blah, blah. It's not because of the type of content they'll be producing. I have I have no problem 
with Disney, you know, putting out these kinds of properties. The problem I have is that it's soaking up everything and there's no more no more independent lines, no more middle middle class production companies out there or, or movie companies. And it, it's becoming more and more empty and vacant of any real heart and soul because you've got people that really are only concerned with how much money they're making. And they're going to be stripping people away of, of entertainment or considering, oh, this isn't good enough because it's not going to make us two, three billion dollars and only make us one billion. It's depressing to, to see that, to see that um, that one thing is just soaking up everything. I do have this fear that eventually Disney is Disney and Sony are just going to own everything or they're just going to consume each other and make one giant conglomerate thing and nothing will be entertaining anymore. That's true. And speaking of conglomerates, people keep I keep reading this and people obviously don't follow the money, if you will. People go, well, if you don't like, you know, the Disneyfication of movies and whatnot, why don't you go to this company and this company and this company? It's like you do realize that, like, Disney owns Miramax. And I can't remember if Disney owns New Line or if it's Warner Brothers that owns New Line. And people keep pointing out, like, well, New Line's making independent films. It's like, no, New Line's a corporate <laughs> entity. It's like all of these companies, really, the only independents that are left are Full Moon, which are, let's face it, now is a complete joke. Troma, mm -hmm. who is still chugging along, and I wish them all the luck in the world. And the Asylum. I hate to say it as much as I hate the Asylum. They're one of the independents that's still doing okay. Yeah. If I know why, but they are. <laughs> Is it really that's what it's come down to? Is the Asylum now the new arbiter of what low-quality filmmaking is? The Asylum is at least better than New Image was in the late 90s. So mm. there's that, at least. You know, we've been picking, especially me, picking on the corporations. I gotta say, a lot of this comes down to audience. Uh, that movie Blue Ruin, people aren't seeking these films out but they will seek out an asylum film. Again, the bad movies are getting... It, it's What's the expression about it's better to be infamous than to be unknown? That's what we're dealing with. Even bad films are marketable. Why is Asylum doing well? Simple. Their films are ripoffs of bigger movies. People talk about that. Just like how the Mojo... Uh, Watch Mojo thing works on YouTube, that they intentionally do top 10 lists that tick people off because if people agreed with it, they don't talk about it. But if they disagree with it, oh my gosh, you've got to see what Watch Mojo said about the best Saturday Night Live performers and they pass it around. The same goes with movies today. If people aren't talking about it, nobody's going to see it. And I think that it, a lot of the blame does lie with them. Do you think that there is a chance that the middle class filmmaking is going to come back? Do you think it's going to stay... Because really what it is, it's two extremes, low budget or high budget. That's about it right now because budgets keep getting larger and larger. I mean, when I was a kid and I saw that Star Trek, the motion picture or Superman or whatnot cost 20, 30 million, it's like, oh, my God, that's astronomical. And yet you're able to make a Star Trek film, 14, 17 million dollars. Nowadays, that's not even the pre-production costs. Nowadays, I mean, like, I don't think Disney would put out a live action movie anymore. That doesn't cost $100 million. Now, that said, I don't understand how some movies cost so much. I'm looking at, like, the Judd Apatow comedies. The last seven movies Judd Apatow made, the lowest budget on one of those was $29 million. How does Trainwreck, just a comedy about people being goofy together, cost $35 million? Is that part of the problem, too? That you realize that 
again, Avco Embassy, AIP, and whatnot, they 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 made all of these Animal House ripoffs for $750,000. Hell, Animal House. Look at the size of the cast, all the destruction, all the vehicles, all the sets. That was a $3 million movie. How in the fuck does Trainwreck and Bridesmaids cost $35 million? Two factors. Inflation being one, and the second factor being, I think actors just seem to be a lot more expensive these days. Actors seem to be, especially, um, I guess, getting Amy Schumer in a movie or Seth Rogen or Paul Rudd or whoever seems to be fairly expensive. They, their worth has has gone up, and I think a lot of the budget and a lot of especially these comedies is due to wrangling up these actors and paying them their accommodations and making sure that they're nice and snug and secure in their movie and giving them the lines that, you know, certain scenes that they want to have, like how Seth Rogen has to rip into his co-star at some certain point of the movie sense a lot of weird politics in them and that's just that's just one of the one of the small one of the small things that annoy me is the fact that comedy nowadays costs like 38 million dollars it makes no sense to me and more than half of them are painfully unfunny well i think uh peter's already hit uh two of the biggest reasons and i'll throw in the third because uh, i think he's covered those well enough it's the same reason we don't have uh really nice posters these days the lawyers are the agents now okay agents are more lawyers than they are ever and everybody wants their piece if there's that potential there's that runaway hit everybody wants to make sure they have their not just their piece of the pie but their large piece of the pie and there are contracts on top of contracts on top of contracts being written to deal with not just what they're currently dealing with okay but what could happen five years from now or ten years from now and the simple fact of the matter is is that there's more there are more people involved, more than, again, we have the time to comment on. And so it's just a lot of behind-the-scenes setting. You're not just paying for Paul Rudd or Amy Schumer. You're probably paying for this other person. They demand be involved with the film. If this particular song becomes a hit, there has to be that side notation in the contract for how much money that person could get if it's going to be utilized in a sequel, and so on and so on and so on. But there's also something else you, you, you accidentally hit on there. Use in the sequel. We don't get standalone movies anymore from studios. You get every movie has to be the first chapter in a saga, the first chapter in a trilogy. How many sci-fi or horror movies have come out in the last decade that are made specifically with a part two in mind and a part three in mind? What the hell happened to just making a good movie, not having to make a good movie that sets up the next movie? Because, I mean, really, look at all of the Marvel movies to date. Not a single one of them has been a standalone movie. They have all been a movie that is maybe two-thirds standalone and the other third is setting up the next movie. And it's like, why can't we just get a movie that is an, uh, in, is, and of itself? Why does everything have to be a franchise now? Can you make it as an independent filmmaker today if you're not making a franchise movie or at least have franchise potential? That could very well be why, why all the potential middle-class movies are falling through the cracks nowadays because those filmmakers in question don't have anything in mind to make a sequel. I highly doubt that Nicholas Reffin wants to make a sequel to Only God Favors or to Drive. He just wants to move on to the next project, you know, start writing or directing his, his next movie and thinking up how to like this cool shot and get this uh, with this actor and have an experience with that. Whereas, yeah, the, you have movies like, like how many insidious movies are at this? I think they're working on the fourth 
basically the entire Blumhouse line. They don't yeah. make films. They make entries into franchises. And that's mm-hmm. what I hate, that you know. I mean, yes, we all love the Friday the 13th and all that. The first Friday the 13th was not made with a sequel in mind. Otherwise, they wouldn't mm-hmm. have put that ending in there if it had a sequel potential. You know, yeah. the, Halloween did not have a sequel in mind. Hell, even movies that seem like they were setting up a sequel always weren't. Evil Dead 2, that was not meant to lead into Army of Darkness. That ending was just supposed to be a closed circle of the prophecy. That was not, that mm-hmm. was the last eight, the last eight minutes or so was not meant to set up the next movie. It just happened to work like that. But that's not mm-hmm. how Sam Raimi made it. That I think is something that's changed now. The franchise has to work. You don't make movies anymore. You make franchises. And I think that ideal is one of the things that's killing films. I uh, agree with Peter and you both. It's definitely played a part in it. And, uh, you know, this all started, obviously, early 2000s. You know, the prequels were terrible, but they were ludicrously successful. Then we've got Lord of the Rings. Then we got Harry Potter. And then this just kept going and going and going. You know, Twilight is one of the most, I think it's like the third most successful series of films. And it's also the most derided. They're terrible films. Everybody knows they're terrible films. Mm-hmm. But they're they're in the billions, okay? They've made billions. I just saw an argument breaking out on both a forum and on Facebook about is Jessica Jones and Daredevil going to appear in the Marvel Avenger movies? So there you go. People are already expecting this. They, you know, in that case, conditioning or it's what they want. In that case, I don't know about Jessica Jones, but Daredevil and Kingpin have been confirmed to be in Captain America three in the civil war movie. So it already is happening whether they're debating it or not. Well, exactly. And my point just was the expectation is already there. So again, the studios, I, I don't want to keep saying they win, but that's, they're successful. They're, they're correct. It's what the public wants. You two are, you two know movies that I don't know. And you didn't know Blue Ruin. Again, you know, to go back to that is just the example. It's a great little movie. Mm. You know, certain people are talking about, but not enough are talking about. But what are people talking about? Gee, I, I hope Jessica Jones, which only just came out, is going to be in an Avengers movie. What can you do? Along that same line, though, let's look at, like, Superman versus Batman Dawn of Justice. What about when you've got two different successful parallel properties that you're just confusing an audience with when it does come to cross-potential? For instance, you've got the Flash TV series, which is spun off of the Arrow TV series. The Flash and Green Arrow are both going to be in Dawn of Justice. But Warner Brothers has straight up said it's not the same characters from that. The TV shows exist in their own universe. The movies exist in their own. Don't you think that's kind of stupid if you're trying to build a franchise like that to confuse the audience to go, wait a minute, you mean the Flash I've been watching every Tuesday on the on the CW is not the Flash that's in the movie? Isn't that kind of self-sabotage? Well, and as far as my opinion goes, not really, because I hate Arrow and The Flash. I think those TV shows stink, and I'm glad that they're going to have nothing to do with the Batman versus Superman movie. The idea, though. Um, I could see that maybe self-sabotaging, at least in terms of people who, who are expecting the TV show you know, crossover. But if you because, because expect Peter, that, whether, you know, it's, it's kind of... Peter, whether you like The Flash or not, it's the highest-rated superhero TV program of all time. 
people like it. Wow. So that makes it very odd to say, yes, that character you really like in the TV show, no, it's a totally different character in the movie, but it's the same character, and we'll, we'll let you figure that out. That just seems moronic to me. Sort of and sort of not. I mean, it's it's a different movie property. Obviously, Zack Snyder is going for something different than what the Flash TV show is and what the Arrow TV show is. Uh, he, he wants to build his own kind of universe with that. But it, it does show that the whole people expecting the crossovers, already wanting Jessica Jones to show up in, in a Marvel movie, even though, you know, her that that season has barely even gotten cold. You know, Daredevil and Kingpin are showing up in the next Iron Man movie, which really doesn't work, in my opinion, because the Daredevil show is like ridiculously almost exploitation film levels hard R. You've got the, the Captain America Iron Man movies, which are like PG-13 at best. But I guess that's just what it's come down to, the whole fan expectation of the crossovers and of the expansions. I mean, we're we're we've come to a generation now where you've got something like The Hobbit, which was one short book expanded into three films. So there's a lot of stupidity. I think the problem here is DC has been looking at Marvel too closely. Uh, everything they're trying to do, they were looking, oh, what's successful for Marvel? What's not successful? And right around the time these projects were occurring, uh, Marvel had launched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. did not do well out of the gate. It's still not doing well. And the biggest complaint that was being levied at it was that it was being crushed under the weight of having to deal with the film continuity. So if I now this is just a guess, but I would guess that they were thinking, hmm, we don't want that problem. We want a movie universe and we want a television universe and never the twain shall meet. They were probably just being, I don't want to say smart, but... They were definitely being cautious. If I had to take a guess, I would say that's probably what it was about. That way, those stories, because they can cross over with each other. They don't need to cross over with the films, and they don't have to worry about each other's continuity. Along those same lines, sticking with DC, though on the other hand, you have the Supergirl TV series, which takes place in the Man of Steel continuity, which makes it part of the Dawn of Justice continuity. So you kind of go, so then does the Supergirl, the events of the Supergirl TV series then matter in Dawn of Justice? Do you see how, I mean, Marvel, for all my complaints against them and Disney, their continuity is stupid, but it's tight. DC seems to be, this is, this isn't. This is, this isn't. This is, this isn't. Which I think for your comic book fans, we can keep that separate. I can remember, okay, Supergirl takes place in the same continuity as the Man of Steel movie, but not in the Air, but not with Arrow and Flash. Fine. Do you really think your average viewer is going to get that? Or, considering Supergirl's a pretty big ratings hit, are they going to wonder, why isn't Supergirl in Dawn of Justice? Because Superman appears a bunch of times in the TV show, in the, in the Supergirl show, kind of. So why isn't Supergirl there to help help fight Doomsday? Do you think that's, that is just going to confuse the average viewer then with things being yes and no? I don't think there's going to be an issue. I think people are smart enough. DC has had elsewhere, uh, Elseworld issues. They've had multiple continuities before. No, I don't think it's going to be an issue. If it does, then that's their downfall for being stupid and expecting too much. I mean, comic books in general have different writers and different series, uh, different characters, different interpretations. There's a lot of different canons. Even in Marvel, they've got their whole expanded universe and their ultimate universe and all this sh If anybody looks at that and goes, well, this is all part of the same canon, you're overthinking it and you're a bit of a simpleton. Um, you have to be able to differentiate between that. To differentiate, you have to be able to look at 
the different writers and then the different artists and people that are that are releasing it. The same thing is happening with the movies. Just because there's a DC property TV show doing doing Arrow and doing uh, you know the Flash, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to show up in Zack Snyder's Dawn of Justice. Uh, same with um, same with the Supergirl thing, and that can get very confusing where you have something that's part of the same the same property, and you wonder well, why isn't she showing up to help against Doomsday in the movie? Because they kind of shoot themselves in the foot by connecting that canon by making the TV show and making the movie the way I the way I see it shows like Agents of, Sh- of Shield shows like Supergirl that are connected to these other properties like you know Agents of Shield is connected to all the Marvel movies and you got Supergirl connected to Dawn of Justice it's it's sort of in a way uh, and I, it's the way I used to look at things like pro wrestling when I was a kid the show you would watch on Monday the live live taping or whatever was kind of the filler until you get to the pay per view I sort of see shows like Supergirl and shows like like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of the filler. Like, you're kind of just watching it in between and waiting for the actual movie to come out, which is why I could never really get into them, because they just they don't hold any real gravity to me. I disagree. I, I think the Supergirl TV series is fantastic, and I'm enjoying the hell out of it. To, to get back to, to end out the night, let's get back to the middle class. Do you think the middle class filmmaking can make a comeback? Do you think that as Disney gets more and more bombs on their hands and they, they've had a share of their $100 million plus bombs and it seems like the, the more expensive the movie, the much bigger risk you're taking, obviously. Do you think that a couple of really good bombs in a row are going to eke those budgets back down to the point where we might get that middle class again or do you think that the divide will just continue to get wider and wider between, I'm just using the extremes, Disney and the Asylum? Well, I guess the carrying capacity of anything eventually, you know, there, there's a breaking point. They want so much money that I, I think it's obvious that at some point, these, if these budgets continue, there's just no way they could make their money back. It is quite possible that audiences will rebel and stop going. Uh, they could just, it could just dry up. People could become offended by the idea of it, just like they did with baseball when baseball players started complaining. Well, I'm hoping the divide doesn't continue because that's just becoming a a horrible black hole of uh, of Disney just consuming every possible company and property they have. I hope there's a bit of a of a rebellion there, and I hope we get a a, a resurgence in the middle class of film. That's what I'm hoping for because I think that'll be that'll be great for for everybody. People will get introduced some, to some new movies. The, the lesser known directors will get a little bit more of a chance and movies like and, and companies like Disney can stop freaking consuming everything. Well, I think Disney is an example of everything that's wrong with filmmaking personally. I, I think that I think that's that Disney is a perfect example of every single thing that is wrong with movies today. I, I don't I think Disney is almost too big to fail. They've got so much infrastructure. I honestly am not sure I can see Disney going under. I, th- I see this divide getting worse and worse and worse, and I don't think it's going to get any better. I think the divide is going to become wider. Not It's not going to clam itself to back together. All right, well, it, at the last second there, we lost Fred for some reason. Skype is Skyping us. So Fred doesn't get a SIG out, but Frederick Fritz... He used to do Movie Apocalypse, but that's been shut down, so he doesn't really have anything that he wants us to send you to at the moment. But Peter is still doing stuff. 
Yes, yes, I am. Uh, you can uh, find me actually putting out content. I've actually put out uh, a video uh, this week. I put I put one out last week, and I'll be I'll be putting up one next week as well. Uh, and you can find that on YouTube, the Cinemasochist. You can find it on Twitter at Cinematica. You can find it on Facebook, the Cinemasochist. Got all your info and stuff there. And you can also find me at 1201beyond.com. Hopefully with some T-shirts. Cassandra, I'm looking at you. Ooh, gauntlet thrown down. <laughs> well, you, you can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I'm not saying you can't enjoy or patronize big-budget films. I'm saying don't allow big-budget films to get rid of the mid-budget films because we really need – I would love another Canon or an Avco embassy to pop up in this environment, in this market. I just don't think it's going to happen. So you guys have a good night. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.